On this episode of AvTalk, we welcome aerospace journalists John Walton and John Ostrauer to discuss United Airlines' order for Boom's supersonic overture jet and the likelihood of the aircraft ever entering service. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, and we have a special episode, not just with one special guest, but with two special guests, both named John, but spelled differently. So that's how we tell them apart. Although in audio format, that's going to be tricky. Well, luckily, they have different accents. Joining us this episode are John Ostrauer, the editor-in-chief of The Air Current, the kind of preeminent industry publication as it has become. And also joining us is aerospace journalist extraordinaire, John Walton. Welcome, Johns. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like we're, we're about to be booked. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different podcast. Yeah, <laughs> So you gentlemen have graciously agreed to join us to pick apart and help us understand what the big news was last week. So to kind of catch everything up and we'll give the the headline view without any editorializing the first time through. United Airlines placed an order, asterisk, for a supersonic aircraft, asterisk, produced by Boom Supersonic that will operate hopefully sometime in the middle of 2020 or carry uh, passengers by 2029. And the airline and the air framer will work together to accelerate the production of greater supplies of sustainable aviation fuel because the aircraft is designed to be powered completely by sustainable aviation fuel. If I call me asterisk halfway through that, right? Yeah, so- uh, a bit of those uh, qualifications before United actually takes any of these aircraft, it has to meet three key points. United wants it to meet its, I'm quoting here, demanding safety requirements. The second point is it must also meet United's operational requirements. And the last is that it must meet United's sustainability requirements. We don't know what exactly those requirements are across the board, but they exist in some fashion known between Boom and United. I'm, I'm guessing it's pretty loosely defined at this point. But those are some pretty big ifs. I mean, I kind of called it a catch-all Federal Aviation Administration certification because I feel like from an operational, from a safety perspective, obviously that's governed by, by the FAA. From a sustainability perspective, the ability to use sustainable aviation fuels is going to re- require you know, certification and qualification for the propulsion system. And operationally, certainly – that, yes, that gives a little more squishy in terms of the, the the United side of things, but you know all of this is dependent on a lot of things going right. Certainly in this timeline for Boom, given where where we're at right now, so I think it's asterisks on this one is is probably the most accurate way to describe this. But there is, as as I think you know, there's a long, 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 long way to go before we see supersonic. And there are a lot of questions about whether or not this is even uh, a viable or even a responsible idea. So let me just take a really quick poll on a scale of fire festival of airplanes to venerable aviation technology that will absolutely be in service. Where does everyone fall 
on that kind of scale. I'm going for nine out of ten jar rules. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to play sort of a, a a different tune on this one. the The skepticism is high, right, on this one for a lot of reasons. Not the least of which is the fact that we know what it takes to become a commercial aircraft manufacturer, and that requires billions and billions of dollars and years and years and years, and also lately, the backing of nations. And so from a private venture perspective, it, the, the odds are very are long on this one. I would, I would just say on the second half of that is they're out doing it. And I say doing it from the perspective of they established a company, they've designed a, a demonstrator for XB1, and they are, they're in the, in the market putting themselves forward to, to offer this. None of that is to say that isn't that immediately uh, grants blanket credibility, the reality of, of technology, the reality of, of industrialization. And there, like I said, this comes with a lot of, of skepticism and a lot of questioning, which by the way, if they are a serious uh, organization, which they are very much of the belief that they are, they should be you know ready and prepared to answer answer hard questions about about doing big, hard things. So let me back up before we talk about what the challenges are and will be to actually get this aircraft into service. And, and I want to have kind of two discussions here. One, the second discussion I want to have is is what are those challenges and and how likely are they to be overcome? But but I want to step back and ask: Is this something that needs doing? Is there a market here, or is this a product that is trying to create a market? Well, I think that fundamentally, yes, there is a market for people who would like to go faster when they travel, right? Like, like if if I can go from, I don't know, uh, San Francisco to Tokyo in half the time because I'm flying at twice the speed of sound, that would be very interesting to me. That is not, however, what's on the cards here, right? The, this aircraft does not have the range to do US West Coast to Tokyo. There are many other barriers around it um, doing anything over land. So yes, is our motherhood and apple pie both good things? Yes. Are either of those things on offer? Kind of no. I think there was once a much greater market for supersonic travel, but that market, while it still exists, is much diminished these days. Business class and, and to a lesser extent, first class products have much more prevalence. They are much more comfortable, they are much better than they were when supersonic travel was last with us in the era of the Concorde. These days, I think most people will still prefer a full night's rest in a great full flat pod with a TV screen and Wi-Fi as opposed to what's probably going to be a rather cramped seat on a small supersonic aircraft when they've become accustomed to so many amenities over the years. There still will be demand, but I don't think it will be anything like what we saw back in the day with the Concorde. The irony of supersonic operations is you can't get around geography and time zones. I mean, it's like it doesn't like it's still those those things still exist. So you have to work within that. So like I, I for the reporting around the article that I wrote last week uh, for the air current on this one, really focused in on not just sort of, you know, where boom is right now, but also what are the realities? What did, what did British Airways and Air France go through to fly the Concorde across the Atlantic? And it was really, really interesting. And, and Jason, you hit on the great point, which is that, you know, club world and for, and, you know, first class, I mean, you can get a great night's sleep. And what actually, interestingly enough, 
the way Concord worked was that there was about a 20 percentage point difference in load factor coming back to Europe on the Concord than there was going to New York. And a lot of that was because you, you'd, you know, you'd leave in the morning and you, you'd land uh, about an hour before you left in New York. You have a full day's worth of work. And the return flight on Concord to do it all in one day left about 1.45 p.m. And you'd get back to London about, about 10.30 at night, roughly. And then you'd, you know, you'd theoretically go to your, your home and you'd sleep and be back at, at, at truncated night's sleep, but you'd be back at your desk the next morning. Well, what, what, what BA found was that a lot of very you know, premium passengers would prefer to fly first class or business class on the way back to to Europe because they would you know you have a much longer day you didn't want to end your day at at like eleven thirty in the morning to get to, to leave for the airport and in you know New York traffic and then you'd get back to Europe in the effectively the next you know, late at night but now you'd go way to subsonic and you're like hey I'm actually going to get a good night's sleep and I'll be back at my desk at a normal reasonable hour the next morning so you, know, you kind of can't get around time zones here I mean and so the Concorde utilization was actually pretty lazy principally because of the time zone constraints. So the market is is definitely challenged, but I think you, you hit a great point here, which is that, okay, if I'm flying, is there a market for a passenger flying from Denver to London supersonic? Well, number one, you can't do it over land. But if you say, I'm going to fly Denver to, to Newark or JFK and connect to a supersonic flight to London to save time, the amount of time that you have with the layover actually totally diminishes any benefit really that you would have from a the supersonic leg. So essentially, you know, is a 787 or an A350 from from Denver or Los Angeles or, or wherever ends up being faster than supersonic. So, you know, the irony is that what did Boeing do when they looked at you know, low you know, high speed operations back in the late 2000s? Well, they they said, "Well, how about we just do a long range uh, aircraft that can fly point to point and sk- save yourself the hub?" So, you know, this is a product uh, from a market perspective that relies on the same megacity idea that Airbus was counting on for the A380. But and that worked again, out very well. Right. Except also that the land is lava, right? Yes. You can't fly over the land supersonically. So what you end up doing is either you do something like, well, okay, from Chicago to the coast of the east coast of the US, you end up flying sort of subsonic over Chicago and then you sort of step on the gas as you get over the water, which is fine maybe for Chicago, but actually then you start going, well, actually, exactly how much time am I saving and spending how much more on it? But for something like California or the US West Coast or really anywhere else, it's it's really questionable. Um, and that's if they had the range, which they apparently do not. They've got a 4,500 nautical mile range, which is just about doable for for what they needed to do, right? Yeah, I mean, so the initial idea that the boom aircraft would be able to do 500 routes seems if not insanely ambitious just plain it's not wrong? it's not possible it's not possible it's a the geography being what it is and demographics being what they are and the location of of population being what what it is today connected with a the re- requirement that you can't fly over land for supersonic operations means that that is not a realistic estimate 
I do not understand where that where that number comes from. And so, kind of keeping with the, is this something people want, and is there a market for it? I mean, the market shrinks dramatically from from the the top line number that they kind of came up with. And so, setting that aside, and looking at some of the possible routes, and setting all of the land on Earth aside, because you can't fly super, no government up until this point and probably not ever is going to say sure you can fly you know all you want over land and, and sonic booms don't matter i mean that shrinks the market for this aircraft incredibly small and so where does boom see this fitting in alongside i mean other than just saying we can get you there faster i don't see a a this is why we're doing this i think do people want to go faster yes do people I'm, I'm going to be uncharitable here, but do people want better food and economy class? Also, yes. Will they pay for it in mass to make it to make it work? No. So, yeah, and, so, and I so, guess so, that's my real question. Right. My question is: Okay, there is a population of people who would like to go faster, right? That's inherently end of everyone. Are there enough people who would like to go faster and are willing to pay for it? That shrinks you dramatically in terms of your size. Of the remaining people, how many of those would like to do it if it has deleterious environmental consequences? And you shrink again and will only continue to be shrinked, right? This this is not the 1980s. People are you know, fundamentally more more uh, environmental than they were. And once you start going, you know, then you start going, okay, well, fine, if you want to go faster, where can you go faster to and from? And this just gets so small, and it is such a massive engineering challenge I just can't see how they make that work. And that's something that's interesting to me is that everyone seemingly thinks that the demand for this is quite low, yet United's order is actually quite large. They they placed a well hypothetical order for 15 aircraft plus options for 35 more. That's quite a large fleet of supersonic aircraft, and I'm not sure where these almost 50 aircraft will eventually end up going. And it's far more aircraft than I think any airline ordered for either supersonic aircraft, either the Concorde or the the Boeing SST that never made it through. Back in those times, United, much smaller airline, obviously, they ordered six. Here we see them ordering 50. So I'm also just quite surprised about the sheer number of aircraft United thinks it will need. The size of the United told me that the size of the transatlantic market is three times larger today than it was in 2003 when when Concorde went away, which I think that they are anchoring sort of their expectation on that. And I think that that's a helpful sort of variable to think about when you think about market demand. The question all you know, then becomes, you know, number one, who's booking the ticket? Are corporate travel managers going to go for speed? And be willing to do that relative to again what you said, you know, a, a push in terms of ESG responsibilities at companies that are certainly growing uh, relative to climate change and, and, and other other social priorities. So I, I think that there, there are all these things that are that are that are stacking up. You know, ultimately what United is counting on, and, and by the way, I, I will I will note the divergence because I think it's important. You know, Boom has has talked about, and let's set aside a second generation, third generation boom aircraft for a second, because I think that's not reasonably part of the conversation at this point, at least certainly not realistically relative to the first part of the question, which is, which there are still lots of questions about. So this is not about the, the cost of operation for United. 
Boom is talking about how making you make supersonic travel more accessible by reducing the uh, the you know the, the operating cost of an airplane by seventy five percent. Okay, you know, yes, the cost of a seven hundred seven versus today versus today's seven eight seven is probably about seventy seventy five percent cheaper as well. So and those are aircraft of you know, relatively the same vintage Concorde versus versus 707. 707 was a little bit earlier, but fundamentally you're talking about 1960s technology. So relative to that, if you have an aircraft that scales along the, 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 the curve, which I believe Boom thinks it, it has, it can achieve, or at least it's, it, it, I believe that it's, it's, it's marketing at this point, that is fundamentally different from the idea that united is coming at this which is this is not about chasm which is which is the cost of of proceed to operate the the airplane this is about rasm the revenue you can get for actually operating this this aircraft and they want to get paid for it this is not about making it more accessible to a larger larger community of, of travelers this is about finding those people that want to to fly faster and charging them more for it. So fundamentally what what Boom is asking airlines to do is, and this is the most audacious part of it to, to some extent, which is they're asking them to buck a trend that has been the single most consistent anchoring, anchoring force in aviation over the last 60 years, which is that airlines achieved a very happy place of flying between Mach 0.79 and 0.8586 and flying cheaper every successive generation. So you're asking airlines to to essentially give up the control that they have so tightly sought, which is lower operating costs, lower operating costs, lower operating costs, something that they a lever that they can pull versus okay, we're going to leave it to saying the market is going to say there this will command a premium. And throughout history, in terms of airline economics and operations and, and behavior, the exact opposite has been true. So as long as those two things are are in not entirely lined up in terms of airline prior airline priorities and what they're looking for, that is going to be the biggest ask in terms of of the airlines to try and behave differently. And that I think is is, is probably one of the biggest single market obstacles that that boom is going to face beyond uh beyond united i want to take a very short break here and then when we come back we will discuss more on the aircraft side of the challenges the boom supersonic proposal presents we'll be right back welcome back let us now dive into the challenges that less the market faces and more that Boom faces in, in actually developing an aircraft. And John, I want to start this conversation with a quote that you got from Mike Leskinen, who's United Airlines Head of Corporate Development. And his quote is, it is a real aircraft that we are pursuing, end quote. And I feel like this is one of those things where, you know, if you have to say that, it makes me think maybe it's not a real aircraft that they're pursuing. The airplane business requires a lot of credibility. And to earn that credibility, 
it cannot be done alone. And so in a large, in a re, very real way, United is putting its credibility uh, as a as a premier selector and evaluator of commercial aircraft. They're like one of fewer than 10 airlines in the world who have the capability to really genuinely do that. Um, they're putting that stamp on United with some very important caveats. And, you know, the biggest uh, caveat, of course, is that there is no engine for this supersonic airplane. And that is, uh, you know, look, there, there are a lot of hurdles that, that are in front, of, uh, in front of Boom and in front of United to, to making this a reality. The economic one uh, and technical one runs straight through being able to get this airplane off the ground. You know, the first part is, you know, what, what's the old saying? No bucks, no Buck Rogers, right? You need money to do it. And, th- and then if you don't have a propulsion system to do it, you're really not going anywhere. So the challenge of getting this aircraft firm and a firm configuration, which Boom says they expect to have by the end of this year, is going to run through what, it, what they're ultimately going to power the aircraft with. And they've been working with Rolls-Royce for over a year now to come up with a concept for an engine. And it's sort of engaged to be engaged to be engaged uh, in terms of the language that, that's been used uh, in, in the past. And you know, uh, when I spoke to Blake Scholl, uh, who's the founder uh, and CEO of Boom uh, last week about this, you know, he was saying they're getting closer in terms of nailing down a, a firm configuration. They had kind of two two possible configurations for for an engine, uh, both of which were based on sort of the latest generation cores from from Rolls Royce, the Trent uh, 1000, 7000 on the 787 and A330 Neo, and the A350, the uh, Trent XWB on the A350, and that you know kind of forms the basis for this, you know. The reality is that Rolls has also been in a really rough place because of the pandemic. And so they have to choose very carefully about where they put their resources for the future. They had briefly put their ultra-fan geared large turbofan, the next-generation turbofan, on hold as part of uh, the pandemic. They're sort of coming out of that on the other side of that now. They have reliability issues that they've had to deal with very acutely on the 787 uh, in the last several years predating the pandemic. And so they need, they themselves as an aircraft manufacturer need to uh, establish whether or not they want to focus on their limited resources, which have been heavily constrained by, by the pandemic and a huge drop in wide body flying on which, again, their business model is based on flight hours and the flight hours have evaporated. Uh, so it's, it's forced a major transformation in the company. So we shall see if this ends up uh, producing an engine. But again, uh, without an engine, boom, and any supersonic entrant is not going anywhere. It, it does not indeed go boom. And I think that's that's from like, you mentioned that neither of those engines has exactly covered itself in glory in terms of reliability. And I hate to be the one person who makes the AvTalk podcast mention Norwegian again, but you know the Norwegian <laughs> 787 problems. <laughs> I mean, some of that was Boeing, but also some of that was not Boeing, right? And I mean, fundamentally, as, as I say, there are people who I talk to about this stuff, and there's a level of, of people who are not aviation enthusiasts or industry people. And I say, there is no engine to this. And that's all you need to know until there is an engine to this. And just, yeah, it's, it is so fundamental that every aircraft has a launch engine when it is launched and sold, that so much of the hype around this, without any sort of 
actual information about an engine apart from, oh yeah, we might buy one from Derby, just feels so out of left field that the entire thing just gets called into question. Yeah, I also want to call into question the, the timeline. Now, United has said they expect entry into service by 2029, which seems extremely accelerated to me, seeing as they don't even have the the plans to develop an engine to install on this aircraft. And I'm comparing that to other recent aircraft, like the 777X was launched in November 2013, and it still isn't in operation with any airline. It's still in flight testing. That is a conventional aircraft with the conventional engine. And here we have a, a, a brand new airframer making a supersonic aircraft with a supersonic engine that doesn't exist yet. And they're somehow going to do it by the end of the decade. Is John, I guess either John, is that at all in within the realm of possibility in your opinion? I mean, if you throw enough money at a problem these days, you can probably solve it. Do they have that level of money? Not that I can see. You know, unless this United deal is ooh, four or five or six or maybe ten times the size of United, the entire outfit. I just don't see how they can apply that amount of money, which would solve some of these problems, to their overall level of blocker here. I think the one, one other thing to consider here, I think, is also the role that other airlines are going to play here it, it, with with respect to roles. And I actually heard from one airline person last week who is who works with with the engine makers a lot, and who said that you know, look, the roles hasn't fully fixed all of the entry into service reliability issues with the 1000, 7000 and XWB. And as long as that is the case, the established airlines, by the way, which make up rolls as bread and butter, are going to potentially protest the use of resources on a, uh, a supersonic derivative engine. That's going to create additional you know, kind of initial, you know, fingers on the scale in the opposite direction. But in terms of the timeline, I mean, okay, let's let's just let let's triple seven X is 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 a good example of this. But that obviously was was mired in in a in, in a few other important elements in terms of in terms of the pandemic, in terms of in terms of wide body demand, and so on and so forth. Let's take Bombardier. I think that's a really good that's a really good sort of template here, and I and I just kept coming back. And I heard it from several people, both airline side and and uh, on the operational side and lessor side, who were like, who said, you know, okay, it took Bombardier eight years from the the point of launch to entry into service for a hundred and uh, hundred and ten seat subsonic single aisle airplane, and it effectively destroyed Bombardier commercial aircraft in the process. Bombardier commercial aircraft is not a thing anymore. And so the person the person noted to me that, you know, even now with Airbus at the helm of the A220 formerly C series program, the airplane is still not it's a desired airplane, but it's still not where it had been originally promised as a result of sort of this incredible expense and trouble and strategic challenge of bringing a commercial aircraft to market, subsonic commercial aircraft to market between 2008 from the point of launch to entry into service in, in, um, in, in 20, uh, 2016. 
So I think I, I, I do understand why they've established the timeline that they have. I do not believe, and a, many, and, and a lot of people in this industry, leaders in this industry, you know, uh, folks who, who run airlines, folks who buy airplanes, who design airplanes and engines and supply parts for them, say that is not an achievable goal. And I think that's just based on the certification complexity, industrial complexity, technical complexity of designing a commercial aircraft nose to tail and saying that you're going to have it in the air in five years from right now with no engine selected or developed or, or on the or launched in conjunction with the airplane is is not realistic. Right. And I look at that and I see, I, I like it to Dassault's experience with the Falcon 5X, right? Which is this new sort of, I guess, super mid-size business class, uh, super, mid-size, super mid-size business jet, right? That launched in what, 2012, 2013 with Snecma Silvercrest from Saffron, right? So big name engine, uh, big name engine maker. And they couldn't make that engine work. And the entire program was cancelled and got turned into an entirely different aircraft. That is an established airframer, established engine, known engine. And if the engine doesn't work out, they had to cancel the entire plane. That's the level of risk that even they couldn't manage adequately. And I just, I don't see anything that leads me to believe that, that Boom has adequately managed that risk at this point. And sticking kind of with a financial aspect of it, let's let's discuss for just a, a brief moment, kind of a, I don't know if they were competitors, but another supersonic, a new supersonic entrant, which was Arian, which just, you know, at the end of the month, last month said, we're done. We, we don't have, we don't have the money we need. We're closing up shop. Thank you, everyone. We will return some deposits and call it a day. And and they were building, at least in my mind, an aircraft that seemed like it had a chance. I mean, they, they were, you know, a, a supersonic business jet that tailored very, very closely to, to a market that seems to already exist. People who fly places to do business and then fly home very quickly and have a ton of money. Yep. With, again, a named engine. Well, yeah, I mean... I suppose this whole podcast could just be, you know, 45 minutes of us going, do they have an engine? <laughs> going, do they have an engine? Right. And every point that, that we hit does inherently sort of come back to sort of, do they have the fundamentals of an aircraft here? And if they did, would it work? Right. So setting aside the fact or kind of adding to the fact that the aircraft itself isn't finalized, aside from the engine, there is no engine. We still have to deal with the the climate that we live in, both literally and figuratively, dealing with the environmental cost of supersonic flight. I mean, it's it's one thing to say, well, we're going to power the all of the flights of this aircraft on sustainable aviation fuel. I have some issues with the term of sustainable aviation fuel, but we'll leave that for a different episode. But setting aside we want to do that, it's just simply not possible to do that. I, I can't remember exactly whose study. Uh, I think it was the the, the MIT study or someone referencing some some work that MIT. Yeah, did that on. would be but, Dan Rutherford on Twitter. Yeah, yeah from, from and, the ICCT, and, the, the Council on But but basically, yeah. if they wanted to launch this, it would take a hundred percent 
of the sustainable aviation fuel feedstock to power this one aircraft. Yeah, and that study said that SSTs will be heavy and carbon intensive and up to 10 times subsonic air travel at Mach 2.2, which oddly, Boom is not not pegging as their top speed anymore, their cruising speed. I think it was Mach 1.8 now, so that came down a little bit. But even if this aircraft is powered by, I'm quoting here, air quoting, sustainable aviation fuel, consuming up to 10 times more fuel doesn't mean this is a green aircraft. The the process of making sustainable aviation fuel is not green by any means. It's greener than traditional fuel, but it is not a green process. So there is quite a bit of greenwashing going on with this announcement. Right. So the the sustainable aviation piece here, I think is very interesting because I think a lot of what United is trying to do, and there there were a lot of folks in the environmental community and also from the airline operations community who were questioning whether or not this was the best way to do it. But Scott Kirby, CEO of United, has been very out front in terms of 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 pushing the the reduction in in carbon footprint for for United in terms of sustainable aviation fuel and other 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 initiatives. The reality is this this aircraft will consume more fuel sustainable or otherwise it has to right that's that's physics right you can, there's no there's no way around that because if if somehow it's the the engine has has achieved a uh, the ability to burn as much as a you know subsonic airplane they're sitting on a on a, a breakthrough that has the potential to change aviation uh, that uh, Boeing and Airbus are, are going to want to get their hands on as well when and I see no evidence of 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 that being the case at this point, let just take that as one piece of this. Second piece of this is SAF reduces carbon footprint of the fuel by between about forty and eighty percent, and eighty percent being reusing cooking oils, for example, for sustainable aviation fuels as, as the base of that. We are not at a point at this point where we're at a, a carbon neutral fuel. So there are other there are other means that has to that have to like take place in terms of whether it's sequestration, carbon offsets, other economic forces, buying credits to, to meet that last 20%. That gets obviously far more complex in terms of making a claim of, of aviation neutrality here. Sorry, no, I'm sorry, carbon neutrality rather. As you establish that, let's just assume for a second that the fuel uh, exists. It's the economics of it are going to be uh, make it more expensive than traditional fuel. So it's it's then a question of are the economic claims of of what fuel that isn't necessarily available in the the volumes that you would need it, what are what are they going to cost? And what is that going to do to the cost of of the aircraft? And oh by the way, I think there are there are a lot of there are there are a lot of operational questions here, which is that if you have sustainable aviation fuel, why do you want to use it for an aircraft that burns more of it, as opposed to using it on on a subsonic flight where it burns less of it per passenger. Which again, you know, the ability to to fly eighty eight people at Mach one point seven across the Atlantic will not produce the same per seat economics and per seat fuel burn as a seven eight seven or an eight three fifty on the same route. It is based on technology that exists today and. Technology that exists over, you know, with clarity over the next, the next ten years is not possible. Not a good existence. I'll also say that that eighty-eight people at Mark one point seven was so much of a U-turn that I got whiplash when reading it. 
until last week, it was 55 people at Mark 2.2. I'm not quite sure how you go from 55 to 88, unless you're trying to make someone's maths work and just say, we'll figure the rest out later. To Boom's credit, I, I think I think the the one thing you know, look, we've spent a lot of time talking about why reasons why this may that would probably will will not work environmentally, economically, market wise, so on and so forth. I think one thing that they actually do deserve some 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 credit for in this particular case is actually refining a design and the iterative process of of taking uh, what you initially thought as your expectation for for your aircraft and actually and actually beginning to look at realistically the forces that you're constrained by, noise, fuel consumption, economics, airline need, market uh, market need, all of that, uh, aircraft sizing, engine sizing, all of these different things, and beginning to come up with a concept that gets closer to something that that airlines be- believe, you know, sorry, United believes might work if all of the other pieces come together. So I think that's part of the natural the natural aircraft development process. I think we that that needs to be rec- have some recognition of that here. Uh, however, there are there are other questions around that in terms of the, the operational side of it and 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 the economic side of it. One does not does not answer for the other, but I think as we get closer to what Boom is considering a, a firm configuration here, Assuming there's an engine, assuming there, there all, all these pieces together, this type of refinement is going to be important. And actually, it's actually really interesting. 1.7 versus Mach 2. Point, actually, 2.0 because I think 2.2. Let's just set that off the side for a sec because you know, pick a number. But if you're talking about versus Concorde across the Atlantic, it's actually pretty darn close because the amount of time you're spending at uh, high-speed cruise, long-range high-speed cruise really doesn't save you that much time relative to what you would have to do technically in terms of the sizing of the engine for for noise requirements to to number one be a good neighbor in theory and burn less fuel while also having a a, a speed that that you can actually get paid for yeah i've got to say though that like sort of i'm somewhat sympathetic to the refining the design thing but I just can't see it as anything more than a paper airplane if suddenly the capacity jumps by 40% and the speed drops by, what, 15 to 25%. That doesn't seem like refining, and it certainly doesn't seem like the refining that I would expect to be doing eight years before this is supposed to go into commercial service. That's the kind of thing that I would have expected, I don't know, Boeing to be doing five years ago about the NMA versus the FSA, right? You know, what size plane do we want and, and, and how far does it need to fly? It's so fundamentally basic a set of questions that it just calls the whole thing into into real question for me. I think there's a question that that I think we're gonna have to watch for, which is which is that if Boom wants to achieve the the credibility that it that it is seeking, the goalposts have to stay in place. And I think that, that speaks to your your point here, which is that if every single time we you know we move forward, it reminds me somewhat of of Virgin Galactic, you know, we're going to fly next year. We're going to fly Richard Brands into space next year, and next year, and next year, and that's been like a decade of that. <laughs> and now, like London buses too, are coming along all at once. Yeah, no, no, right, and 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 so and so there's there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of that, and I think I want to just connect two pieces here. We talked about the engine, and we talked about you know this sort of you know achieving of a big mile, a big big visible commercial milestones. In this particular case, United lending their name to this. 
one of the, the reasons Arion needed so much money to develop a supersonic business jet was because the arrangement it had with GE was that the engine that they were providing had to have been paid for by Arion as they went along. So it was a pay-as-you-go contract. In typical terms with Boeing and Airbus, uh, a, a Pratt Whitney, a GE, a Rolls-Royce will put out the cash themselves to be on a program uh, and develop an engine as you go and then for the, for the payoff later. The amount of risk here associated with a new entrant effectively says, well, pay me and I'll do it for you. And so GE was getting paid as they went through the, through the development and the money dried up and GE stopped. So it's going to require a different investment from Boom. Let's put it this way. Let's just make, say it directly. They're going to need more money sooner that's going to go out the door to develop the engine that's required for this and all the technology because the suppliers that are associated with this are effectively joining what is a, a far more risky endeavor as in, as a new entrant versus a Boeing uh, or an Airbus or an Embraer aircraft. So what Boom needs to show is is demonstrating to investors that there is progress. And United is 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 certainly one of those one of those moments. The rollout of XP One last year was another one of those. Uh, it still has to fly. Uh, they still they still have to, to to move this forward as they sort of get the try to look at raising the money for this. And these are long odds because again, you need to raise a tremendous amount of money, and it requires a tremendous amount of credibility to tell your investors that that this is something that is is achievable. And I think as we as we kind of swirl all of this together. Fundamentally, if, the, if, if this if this has any chance of becoming you know real, the performance targets, the capacity targets are going to have to 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 stay as close to where they are today. Principally because when the goalposts get moved, the realistic window of achieving credibility diminishes. John Ostrauer, will this aircraft ever fly passengers for an airline? Everything says that the odds are long, and I'm not going to sit here and say zero, but I will say it's a it's a very very low chance. And you know something, I will also say I hope I'm wrong. I really I really do. I think it would be would be great to see an aircraft that that achieves the economics, the performance, the environmental profile that Boom is claiming. The problem is that. There are so many questions around the way the world is and the what what technology is today, what airlines are seeking and the realities of 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 the environmental necessity around all of these different pieces that make this a an extremely, extremely ambitious but but facing unbelievable odds that are not in its favor for to be actually become a reality. John Walton, same question. And basically the same answer. Um, I All right. There's a part of me that would really like this to succeed. There is another part of me which is in, you know, in some way concerned about the future of our planet that thinks if it does succeed, it will be an absolute disaster. You know, it's it's not even a sort of head versus heart thing. It's a head versus aviation enthusiast trousers thing and i just don't <laughs> fundamentally think that you can build an airplane on that and so i have to think well what's the what's the exit here 
for is the exit to create some sort of technology demonstrator which is then sold off possibly is is the aim to to get a lot of great publicity in which case did United get its money's worth by having some new renderings drawn up of of the United Globe on the side of a very pointy Concorde plane? That depends on how much money has changed hands and will change hands. I can't say that if it's me, that I would have put my name to a planet-wrecking ultra-rich mobile. Does that make it more or less likely to succeed? I think less. I think that there has been the reaction to this has been so... So very much a giant question mark. With the best will in the world, I can't see a lot of other airlines beating down their door to also invest. And it makes me ask the question, what does United get out of this other than the PR, which would not be worth it? Other than the infinitesimal 1% to 5% chance maybe that this all works out? Does United's investment come with some sort of equity or tech stake in this? I don't know. But the numbers just don't add up in any way. Whether, whether it's the, the economics of doing it, whether it's the you know, physical aircraft technology, whether it's the trend of people being concerned about the climate, whether it's regulatory concerns about, about pollution and noise and safety, all of it together, just there are so few parts of this that, that join up that I can't help but say that the answer to your question is no, this will never happen. And if it goes boom in spectacular fashion, or if it does happen, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for joining us. John Walton, aerospace journalist extraordinaire, can be found on Twitter at thatjohn, J-O-H-N. And John Ostrauer, editor-in-chief of The Air Current, theaircurrent.com, as well as at John Ostrauer on the Twitter machines. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you, John, and thank you, John. You are welcome. Always great with you guys. Thanks. 